0: Hello and welcome to this Tuesday night Law of Success Mastermind call. It's July 30th, 2019. Uh, This week it's Applied Faith and in the Law of Success there isn't an Applied Faith chapter. So what we're going to actually go through is Lesson 2, Self-Confidence. Amidst all the mysteries by which we are surrounded, nothing is more certain than that we are in the presence of an infinite and eternal energy from which all things proceed. Herbert Spencer You can do it if you believe you can. Before approaching the fundamental principles upon which this lesson is founded, It will be of benefit to you to keep in mind the fact that it is practical, that it brings you the discoveries of more than 25 years of research, that it has the approval of the leading scientific men and women of the world who have tested every principle involved. Skepticism is the deadly enemy of progress and self-development. You might as well lay this book aside and stop right here as to approach this lesson with the feeling that it was written by some long-haired theorist who had never tested the principles upon which the lesson is based. Surely this is no age for the skeptic. Because it is an age in which we have seen more of nature's laws uncovered and harnessed than had been discovered in all past history of the human race. Within three decades, we have witnessed the mastery of the air. We have explored the ocean. We have all but annihilated distances on the earth. We have harnessed the lightning and made it turn the wheels of industry. We have even made blades of grass grow where but one grew before. We have made seven blades of grass grow where but one grew before. We have instantaneous communication between the nations of the world. Truly, this is an age of illumination and unfoldment, but we have as yet barely scratched the surface of knowledge. However, when we shall have unlocked the gate, that leads to the secret power which is stored up within us, it will bring us knowledge that will make all past discoveries pale into oblivion by comparison. Thought is the most highly organized form of energy known to man, and this is an age of experimentation and research that is sure to bring us into greater understanding of that mysterious force called thought which reposes within us. We have already found out enough about the human mind to know that a man may throw off the accumulated effects of a thousand generations of fear through the aid of the principle of auto-suggestion. We have already discovered the fact that fear is the chief reason for poverty and failure and misery that takes on a thousand different forms. We have already discovered the fact that the man who masters fear may march on to successful achievement in practically any undertaking, despite all efforts to defeat him. The development of self-confidence starts with the elimination of this demon called fear, which sits upon a man's shoulder and whispers into his ear, You can't do it. You are afraid to try. You are afraid of public opinion. You are afraid that you will fail. You are afraid you will not ha- you will have not the ability. The fear demon is getting into close quarters. Science has found a deadly weapon with which to put it to flight. And this lesson on self-confidence has brought you this weapon for use in your battle with the world old enemy of progress. Fear. The Six Basic Fears of Mankind That's the heading. (laughs) Every person falls heir to the influence of Six Basic Fears. Under these Six Fears may be listed the Lesser Fears. The Six Basic, or Major Fears, are here enumerated and the sources from which they are are believed to have grown are described. The six basic fears are the fear of poverty, the fear of old age, the fear of criticism, the fear of loss of love of someone, the fear of ill health, the fear of death. Study the list then take inventory of your own fears and ascertain under which of the six headings you can classify them. Every human being who has reached the age of understanding is bound down to some extent by one or more of these six basic fears. As the first step in the elimination of these six evils, let us examine the sources from whence we inherited them physical and social heredity all that man is both physically and mentally he came by through two forms of heredity one is known as physical heredity and the other is called social heredity through the law of physical heredity man has slowly evolved from the amoeba a single-celled animal form through stages of development Corresponding to all the known animal forms now on this earth, including those which are known to have existed but which are now extinct, every generation through which man has passed has added his nature has added to his nature something of the traits, habits, and physical appearance of that generation. Every generation through which man has passed has added to his nature something of the traits, habits, and physical appearance of that generation. Man's physical inheritance, therefore, is a heterogeneous collection of many habits and physical forms. There seems little, if any doubt, that while the six basic fears of man could not have been inherited through physical heredity, these six basic fears being mental states of mind and therefore not capable of transmission through physical heredity, it is obvious that through physical heredity a most favorable lodging place for these six fears has been provided. For example, it is a well-known fact that the whole process of physical evolution is based upon death, destruction, pain, and cruelty that the elements of the soil of the earth find transportation in their upward climb through the evolution, based upon the death of one form of life in order that another and higher form may subsist. All vegetation lives by eating the elements of the soil and the elements of the air. All forms of animal life live by eating some other and weaker form, or some form of vegetation. The cells of all vegetation have a very high order of intelligence. The cells of all animal life, likewise, have a very high order of intelligence. Undoubtedly, the animal cells of a fish have learned, out of bitter experience, that the group of of animal cells known as a fish hawk are to be greatly feared. By reason of... The fact that many animal forms, including that of most men, live by eating the smaller and weaker animals. The cell intelligence of these animals, which enter into and become a part of man, brings with it the fear growing out of their experience in having been eaten alive. This theory may seem to be far-fetched, and in fact it may not be true, but it is at least a logical theory if it is nothing more. The author makes no particular point of this theory, nor does he insist that it accounts for any of the six basic fears. There is another and a much better explanation of the source of these fears, which we will proceed to examine beginning with a description of social heredity. By far, the most important part of man's makeup comes to him through the law of social heredity, this term having reference to the methods by which one generation imposes upon the minds of the generation under its immediate control, the superstitions, beliefs, legends, and ideas which it in turn inherited from the generation preceding. By, I'm going to repeat that. Okay. By far, the most important part of man's makeup comes to him through the law of social heredity. This term, having reference to the methods by which one generation imposes upon the minds of the generation under its immediate control, the superstitions, beliefs, legends, and ideas Which it in turn inherited from the generation preceding. That's powerful. The term social heredity should be understood to mean any and all sources through which a person acquires knowledge, such as schooling of religious and all other natures, reading, word of mouth conversation, storytelling, and all manner of thought inspiration coming from. What is generally accepted as one's personal experiences through the operation of the law of social heredity anyone having control of the mind of a child may through intense teaching plant in the child's mind any idea whether false or true in such a manner that the child accepts it as true and it becomes as much a part of the child's personality as any cell or organ of its physical body and just as hard to change in its nature. It is through the law of social heredity that the religionist plants in the child mind dogmas and creeds and religious ceremonies too numerous to describe. Holding those ideas before that mind until the mind accepts them and forever seals them as part of its irrevocable belief. Remember that when you make an appointment with another person, you assume the responsibility of punctuality and that you have not the right to be a single minute late. The mind of a child which has not come into the age of general understanding during an average period covering, let us say, the first two years of its life, is plastic, open, clean, and free. Any idea planted in such a mind, be one in whom the child has confidence, takes root and grows, so to speak, in such a manner that it never can be eradicated or wiped out, no matter how opposed to the logic or reason that idea may be. Many religionists claim that they can so deeply implant the tenets of their religion in the mind of a child that there never can be room in that mind for any other religion, either in whole or in part. The claims are not greatly overdrawn. With this explanation of the manner in which the law of social heredity operates, the student will be ready to examine the sources from which man inherits the six basic fears. Moreover, any student except those who have not yet grown big enough to examine truth that steps upon the pet corns of their own superstitions, may check the soundness of the principle of social heredity as it is here applied to the six basic fears, without going outside of his or her own personal experiences. Fortunately, practically, the entire mass of evidence submitted in this lesson is of such a nature that all who sincerely seek the truth may ascertain for themselves whether the evidence is sound or not. For the moment, at least, lay aside your prejudices and preconceived ideas. You may always go back and pick them up again. You know, while we study the origin and nature of man's six worst enemies. The six basic fears, beginning with the fear of poverty. That's a big one. It requires courage to tell the truth about the origin of this fear, and still greater courage, perhaps, to accept the truth after it has been told. The fear of poverty grew out of man's inherited tendency to prey upon his fellow man economically. Nearly all forms of lower animals have instinct, but appear not to have the power to reason and think. Therefore, they prey upon one another physically. Man, with his superior sense of intuition, thought, and reason, does not eat his fellow men bodily. He gets more satisfaction out of eating them financially. Of all the ages of the world of which we know anything, the age in which we live seems to be the age of money worship. A man is considered less than the dust of the earth unless he can display a fat bank account. Nothing brings man so much suffering and humiliation as does poverty. No wonder man fears poverty. Through a long line of inherited experiences with the man-animal, man has learned, for certain, that the animal cannot always be trusted where matters of money and other evidences of earthly possessions are concerned. Many marriages have their beginning and oftentimes their ending solely on the basis of the wealth possessed by one or both of the contracting parties. It is no wonder that the divorce courts are busy. Society could quite properly be spelled society with a money sign for the S (laughs) because it is inseparably associated with the dollar mark so eager is man to possess wealth that he will acquire it in whatever manner he can through legal methods if possible through other methods if necessary the fear of poverty is a terrible thing A man may commit murder, engage in robbery, rape, and all other manner of violation of the rights of others, and still regain a high station in the minds of his fellow men, providing always that he does not lose his wealth. Poverty, therefore, is a crime, an unforgivable sin, as it were. No wonder man fears it. You know, it's wild because, you know, this was written in 1928 and now we see in 2019 where wealthy men have gotten away with really awful things for a lot of years and are just now being brought to justice. It's insane. Every statute book in the world bears evidence that the fear of poverty is one of the six basic fears of mankind. For in every such book of laws may be found various and sundry laws intended to protect the weak from the strong. To spend time trying to prove either that the fear of poverty is one of man's inherited fears, or that this fear has its origin in man's nature to cheat his fellow man, would be similar to trying to prove that three times two are six. Obviously, no man would ever fear poverty if he had... Any grounds for trusting his fellow man, men, for there is food and shelter and raiment and luxury of every nature sufficient for the needs of every person on earth, and all these blessings would be enjoyed by every other person, every person except for the skin, the swinish, except for the swinish habit that man has of trying to pull all the other swine out of the trough, even after he has all and more than he needs. The second of the six basic fears with which man is bound is the fear of old age. In the main, this fear grows out of two sources. First, the thought that old age may bring with it poverty. Secondly, and by far the most common source of origin, from false and cruel sectarian teachings, which have been so well mixed with fire and brimstone, and with purgatories, and other bogies, that human beings have learned to fear, old age, because it meant the approach of another, and possibly a much more horrible world than this one, which is known to be bad enough. In the basic fear of old age, man has two very sound reasons for his apprehension. The one growing out of distrust of his fellow men, who may seize whatever worldly goods he may possess, and the other arising from the terrible pictures of the world to come, which were deeply planted in his mind through the law of social heredity, long before he came into possession of that mind. Is it any wonder that the man fears the approach of old age? The third of the six basic fears is the fear of criticism. Just how man acquired this basic fear, it would be hard. If not impossible, definitely to determine, but one thing is certain. He has it in well-developed form. Some believe that this fear made its appearance in the mind of man about the time that politics came into existence. Others believe its source can be traced no further than the first meeting of an organization of females known as a woman's club. Still another school of humorists charge the origin to the contents of the Holy Bible, whose pages abound with some very vitriolic and violent forms of criticism. If the latter claim is correct, and those who believe literally all they find in the Bible are not mistaken, then God is responsible for man's inherent fear of criticism, because God caused the Bible to be written. This author, being neither a humorist nor a prophet, but just as ordinary workaday type of person, is inclined to attribute the basic fear of criticism to the part of man's inherited nature which prompts him not only to take away his fellow man's goods and wares, but to justify his action of criticism of his fellow man's character. But to justify his action by criticism of his fellow man's character. Fear of criticism takes on many different forms, the majority of which are petty and trivial in nature, Even to the extent of being childish in the extreme. Bald headed men, for example, are bald for no other reason than their fear of criticism. Heads become bald because of the protection of the hats, because of the protection of hats and tight fitting bands which cut off the circulation to the roots of the hair. Men wear hats not because they actually need them for their sake of comfort, but mainly because everybody's doing it, and the individual falls in line and does it also, lest some other individual criticize him. Women seldom have bald heads, or even thin hair, because they wear hats that are loose, the only purpose of which is to make an appearance. But it must not be imagined that women are free from the fear of criticism associated with hats. If any woman claims to be superior to man with reference to this fear, ask her to walk down the street wearing a hat that is one or two seasons out of style. The makers of all manner of clothing have not been slow to capitalize this basic fear of criticism with which all mankind is cursed. Every season it will be observed the styles in many articles of wearing apparel change. Who establishes the styles? Certainly not the purchaser of clothes, but the manufacturer of clothes. Why does the change why does he change the styles so often? Obviously this change is made so that the manufacturer can sell more clothes. In every soul there has been deposited the seed of a great future. But that seed will never germinate much less grow to maturity except through the rendering of useful service. For the same reason the manufacturers of automobiles with a few rare and very sensible exceptions change styles every season. For the same reason the manufacturers of automobiles change styles every season with a few rare and very sensible exceptions. Kind of like Tesla. Huh? The manufacturer of clothing knows how the man animal fears to wear a garment which is one season out of step with that which they are all wearing now. Is this not true? Does not your own experience back it up? we have been describing the manner in which people behave under the influence of the fear of criticism as it applies to the small and petty things of life let us now examine human behavior under this fear when it affects people in connection with the more important matters connected with human intercourse take for example practically any person who has reached the age of mental maturity from 35 to 45 years of age As a general average, and if you could read his or her mind, you would find in that mind a very decided disbelief of and rebellion against most of the fables taught by the majority of the religionists. Powerful and mighty is the fear of criticism. The time was, and not so very long ago at that, when the word infidel meant ruin to whomsoever it was applied. It is seen, therefore, the man's fear of criticism is not without ample cause for its existence. The fourth basic fear is that of the fear of loss of love of someone. The source from which this fear originated needs but little description, for it is obvious that it grew out of man's nature to steal his fellow men's, man's, his fellow man's mate, or at least to take liberties with her, unknown to her rightful lord, quote unquote, and master. Huh. By nature, all men are polygamous the statement of a truth which will, of course, bring denials from those who are either too old to function in a normal way sexually or have, from some other cause, lost the contents of certain glands which are responsible for man's tendency toward the plurality of the opposite sex. There can be but little doubt that jealousy and all other similar forms of more or less mild dementia, praecox, he says insanity, grew out of man's inherited fear of the loss of love of someone. Of all the sane fools studied by this author, that was in quotes, sane fools, that represented by a man who has become jealous of some woman, or that a woman who has become jealous of some man, is the oddest and strangest. The author fortunately never had but one case of personal experience with this form of insanity, but from the experience he learned enough to justify him in stating that the fear of the loss of love of someone is one of the most painful, if not in fact the most painful, of all the six basic fears. And it seems reasonable to add that this fear plays more havoc with the human mind than do any of the other six basic fears, often leading to the more violent forms of permanent insanity. Yeah, it literally wound me up in the psych ward multiple times. (laughs) After my grandpa died, my grandma died... uh, among other things, it causes trauma. It's a major trauma and I can see why it's described in this way. Luckily, I've been able to break fear of that. I've been able to break free of that fear for the most part. The fear of ill health. This fear has its origin to considerable extent also, in the same sources from which the fears of poverty and old age are derived. The fear of ill health must needs the fear of ill health must needs to be closely associated with both poverty and old age. Because it also leads toward the borderline of terrible worlds, of which man knows not, but of which he has heard some discomforting stories. The author strongly suspects that those engaged in the business of selling good health methods have had considerable to do with keeping the fear of ill health alive in the human mind. For longer than the record of the human race can be relied upon, the world has known of various and sundry forms of therapy and health purveyors. If a man gains his living from keeping people in good health, it seems but natural that he would use every means at his command for persuading people that they needed his services. Thus, in time, it might be that the people would inherit a fear of ill health. The sixth and last of the six basic fears is that of the fear of death. To many, this is the worst of all the six basic fears, and the reason why it is so regarded because it is so regarded becomes obvious to even the casual student of psychology. The terrible pangs of fear associated with death may be charged directly to religious fanaticism, the source which is more responsible for it than are all other sources combined. So-called heathen. Or not as much afraid, so called heathen. Yeah, I think that so called heathen are not as much afraid of death as are the civilized, especially that portion of the civilized population which has come under the influence of theology. For hundreds of millions of years, man has been asking the still unanswered question, and it may be the unanswerable questions whence and whither. Where did I come from, and where am I going after death? The more cunning and crafty, as well as the honest but credulous of the race, have not been slow to offer the answer to these questions. In fact, the answering of these questions has become one of the so-called learned professions, despite the fact that but little learning is required to enter this profession. Witness now the major source of origin of the fear of death. Come into my tent, embrace my faith, accept my dogmas, and pay my salary, and I will give you a ticket that will admit you straight away into heaven when you die, says the leader of one form of sectarianism. Remain out of my tent, says the same leader, and you will go direct to hell, where you will burn throughout eternity. While in fact, the self-appointed leader may not be able to provide safe conduct into heaven, nor, by lack of such provision, allow the fortunate seeker, after truth, to descend into hell. The possibility of the latter seems so terrible that it lays hold of the mind and creates that fear of fears, the fear of death. In truth, no man knows, and no man has ever known, what heaven or hell is like or if such a place exists. And this very lack of definite knowledge opens the door of the human mind to the charlatan to enter and control the mind with his stock of lagardomain and various brands of trickery, deceit, and fraud. The truth is this, nothing less and nothing more, that no man knows nor has any man ever known where we come from at birth or where we go at death. Any person claiming otherwise is either deceiving himself or he is a conscious imposter who makes it a business to live without rendering service of value through play upon the credulity of humanity. Be it said in their behalf, however, the majority of those engaged in selling tickets into heaven actually believe not only that they know where heaven exists, but that their creeds and formulas will give safe passage to all who embrace them. This belief may be summed up in one word: credul- credulity. 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 <laughs> Religious leaders generally make the broad sweeping claim that the present civilization owes its existence to the work done by the churches. This author, so far as he is personally concerned, is willing to grant their claims to be correct, if at the same time he be permitted to add that even if this claim be true, the theologians haven't a great deal of which to brag. But it is not cannot be true that civilization has grown out of the efforts of the organized churches and creeds, if by the term civilization is meant the uncovering of the natural laws and the many inventions to which the world is the present heir. If the theologians wish to claim that part of civilization which has to do with man's conduct toward his fellow man, they are perfectly welcome to it, as far as this author is concerned. But on the other hand, if they presume to gobble up the credit for all the scientific discovery of mankind, the author begs leave to offer vigorous protest. It is hardly sufficient to state that social heredity is the method through which man gathers all knowledge that reaches him through the five senses. It is more to the point to state how social heredity works, in as many different applications as will give the student a comprehensive understanding of that law. Let us begin with some of the lower forms of animal life, and examine the manner in which they are affected by the law of social heredity. Shortly after this author began to examine the major sources from which men gather the knowledge which makes them what they are, some thirty-odd years ago, he discovered the nest of a ruffed grouse. The nest was so located that the mother bird could be seen from a considerable distance when she was on the nest. With the aid of a pair of field glasses, the bird was closely watched until the young birds were hatched out. It happened that the regular daily observation was made but a few hours after the young birds came out of the shell. Desiring to know what would happen, the author approached the nest. The mother remained nearby until the intruder was within ten or twelve feet of her. Then she disarranged her feathers, stretched one wing over her leg, and went hobbling away, making a pretense of being crippled. Being somewhat familiar with the tricks of mother birds, the author did not follow, but instead went to the nest to take a look at the little ones. Without the slightest signs of fear, they turned their eyes towards him, moving their heads first one way and then another, he reached down and picked. He reached down and picked one of them up, with no signs of fear. It stood in the palm of his hand. He laid the bird back in the nest and went away to a safe distance to give the mother bird a chance to return. The wait was short. Very soon she began cautiously to edge her way back toward the nest until she was within a few feet of it. When she spread her wings and ran as fast as she could, uttering, meanwhile, a series of sounds similar to those of a hen when she has found some morsel of food and wishes to call her brood to partake of it. She gathered the little birds around and continued to quiver in a highly excited manner, shaking her wings and ruffling her feathers. One could almost hear her words as she gave the little birds their first lesson in self-defense, through the law of social heredity. You silly little creatures! You do not know that meant that men are your enemies shame on you for allowing that man to pick you up in his hands, it's a wonder he didn't carry you off and eat you alive the next time you see a man approaching make yourself scarce, lie down on the ground, under, run under leaves go anywhere to get out of sight and remain out of sight until the enemy is well on his way you are fortunate if you have learned the difference between temporary defeat and failure More fortunate still, if you have learned the truth, that the very seed of success is dormant in every defeat that you experience. The little birds stood around and listened to the lecture with intense interest. After the mother bird had quieted down, the author again started to approach the nest. When within 20 feet or so of the guarded household, the mother bird again started to lead him in the other direction by crumpling up her wing and hobbling along as if she were crippled. He looked at the nest, but the glance was in vain. The little birds were nowhere to be found. They had learned rapidly to avoid their natural enemy, thanks to their natural instinct. Again, the author retreated, awaited until the mother bird reassembled her household, then came out to visit them. But with similar results. When he approached the spot where he last saw the mother bird, not the slightest signs of the little fellows were to be found. When saw a small boy, the author captured a young crow and made a pet of it. The bird became quite well satisfied with his, its domestic surroundings and learned to perform many tricks requiring considerable intelligence. After the bird was big enough to fly, it was permitted to go wherever it pleased. Sometimes it would be gone for many hours, but it always returned home before dark. One day, some wild crows became involved in a fight with an owl in a field near the house where the pet crow lived. As soon as the pet heard the caw-caw-caw of its wild relatives, it flew up on the top of the house and, with signs of great agitation, walked from one end of the house to the other. Finally, it took wing and flew in the direction of the battle. The author followed to see what would happen. In a few minutes, he came up with the pet. It was sitting on the lower branches of a tree, and two wild crows were sitting on a limb just above, chattering and walking back and forth, acting very much in the same fashion that angry parents behave toward their offspring when chastising them. As the author approached, the two wild crows flew away, one of them circling around the tree a few times, meanwhile, letting out a terrible flow of most abusive language which no doubt was directed at its foolish relative who hadn't enough sense to fly while the flying was good the pet was called but it paid no attention that evening it returned home but would not come near the house it sat on a high limb of an apple tree and talked in crow language for about 10 minutes saying no doubt that it had decided to go back to the wildlife of its fellows then flew away and did not return until two days later, when it came back and did some more talking in crow language, keeping at a safe distance meanwhile. It then went away and never returned. <laughs> wow. Social heredity had robbed the author of a fine pet. The only consolation he got from the loss of his crow was the thought that it had shown fine sportsmanship by coming back and giving notice of its intention to depart. Many farmhands had left the farm without going to the trouble of this formality. It is a well-known fact, well fact that a fox will prey upon all manner of fowl and small animals, with the exception of the skunk. No reason need be stated as to why Mr. Skunk enjoys immunity. A fox may tackle a skunk once, but never twice. For this reason, a skunk hide, when nailed to a chicken roost, will keep. For this reason, a chunk hide, a skunk hide, when nailed to a chicken roost, will keep all but the, all, but the very young and inexperienced foxes at a safe distance. The odor of a skunk, once experienced, is never forgotten. No other smell even remotely resembles it. It is nowhere recorded that any mother fox ever taught her young how to detect and keep away from the familiar smell of a skunk. But all who are informed on fox lore know that foxes and skunks never seek lodgment in the same cave. But one lesson is sufficient to teach the fox all it cares to know about skunks through the law of social heredity, operating via the sense of smell. One lesson serves for an entire lifetime. <laughs> a bulldog, I mean a bullfrog, can be caught on a fish hook by attaching a small piece of red cloth or any other small red object to the hook and dangling it in front of a frog's nose. That is, Mr. Frog may be caught in this manner provided he is hooked the first time he snaps at the bait. But if he is poorly hooked and makes a getaway, or if he feels the point of the hook when he bites at the bait but it is not caught, he will never make the same mistake again. The author spent many hours in stealthy attempt to hook a particularly desirable specimen which had snapped and missed, before learning that but one lesson in social heredity is enough to teach even a humble croaker that bits of red flannel are things to be let alone. The author owned a very fine male, Airedale dog, which caused no end of annoyance by his habit of coming home with a young chicken in his mouth. Each time the chicken was taken away from the dog and and he was soundly switched but to no avail he continued in his liking for foul. It is not strange that we fear most that which never happens. It is not is it not strange that we fear most that which never happens? That we destroy our initiative by the fear of defeat, when in reality defeat is it a most useful tonic and should be accepted as such. For the purpose of saving the dog, if possible, and as an experiment with social heredity, this dog was taken to the farm of a neighbor who had a hen and some newly hatched chickens. The hen was placed in the barn and the dog was turned in with her. As soon as everyone was out of sight, the dog slowly edged up toward the hen sniffed the air in her direction a time or two to make sure she was the kind of meat for which he was looking, then made a dive toward her. Meanwhile, Mrs. Hen had been doing some surveying on her own account, for she met Mr. Dog more than halfway. Moreover, she met him with such a surprise of wings and claws as he had never before experienced. The first round was clearly the hen's. But a nice fat bird, reckoned the dog, was not to slip between his paws so easily. Therefore, he backed away a short distance, then charged again. This time, Mrs. Hen lit upon his back, drove her claws into his skin, and made effective use of her sharp bell. Mr. Dog retreated to his corner, looking for all the world as if he were listening for someone to ring the bell and call the fight off until he got his bearings. But Mrs. Hen craved no time for deliberation. She had her adversary on the run and showed that she knew the value of the offensive by keeping him on the run. One could almost understand her words as she flogged the poor Airedale from one corner to another, keeping up a series of rapid-fire sounds which for all the world resembled them. Remonstrations of an angry mother who had been called upon to defend her offspring from an attack by older boys, there, Dale was a poor soldier after running around the barn from corner to corner for about two minutes. He spread himself on the ground as flat as he could and did his best to protect his eyes and his paws with his paws. Mrs. Hen seemed to be making a special attempt to peck out his eyes. The owner of the hen then stepped in and retrieved her. Or, miraculously stating it, he retrieved the dog, which in no way appeared to meet with the dog's disapproval. Next day, a chicken was placed in the cellar where the dog slept. As soon as he saw the bird, he tucked his tail between his legs and ran for a a corner. He never again attempted to catch a chicken. One lesson in social heredity, being this via the sense of touch, was sufficient to teach him that while chicken chasing may offer some enjoyment, it is also fraught with much hazard. All these illustrations, with the exception of the first, describe the process of gathering knowledge through the direct experience. Through direct experience, observe the marked difference between knowledge gathered by direct experience and that which is gathered through the training of the young by the old, as in the case of the ruffed grouse and her young. The most impressive lessons are those learned by the young from the old, through highly colored or emotionalized methods of teaching. When the mother grouse spread her wings, stood her feathers on end, shook herself like a man suffering from the palsy, and chattered to her young in a highly excited manner, she planted the fear of man in their hearts in a manner which they were never to forget. The term social heredity, as used in connection with this lesson, has particular reference to all methods through which a child is taught. Any idea, dogma, creed, religion, or system— of ethical conduct by its parents or those who may have authority over it before reaching the age at which it may reason and reflect upon such teaching is its own way estimating the age of such reasoning power at let us say 7 to 12 years old. There are Myraids of forms of fear, but none are more deadly than the fear of poverty and old age. We drive our bodies as if they were slaves because we are so afraid of poverty that we wish to hoard money for what? Old age! This common form of fear drives us so hard that we overwork our bodies and bring on the very thing we are struggling to avoid. What a tragedy to watch a man drive himself when he begins to arrive along about the 40-year mile post of life. The 40-year mile post of life. The age at which he is just beginning to mature mentally. A At 40, a man is just entering the age in which he is able to see and understand and assimilate the handwriting of nature, as it appears in the forests and flowing brooks and faces of men and little children. Yet this devil fear drives him so hard that he becomes blinded and lost in the entanglement of a maze of conflicting desires." the principle of organized effort is lost sight of and instead of laying hold of nature's forces which are in evidence all around him and permitted those forces in permitting those forces to carry him to the heights of great achievement he defies them and they become forces of destruction perhaps one of these great forces of nature are more available for man's unfoldment than is the principle of auto-suggestion. But ignorance of this force is leading the majority of the human race to apply it so that it acts as a hindrance and not as a help. Let us here enumerate the facts which show just how the misapplication of a great force of nature takes place. Here is a man who meets with some disappointment, a friend proves false or a neighbor seems indifferent forthwith he decides through self-suggestion all men are untrustworthy and all neighbors unappreciative these thoughts are so deeply embed embed themselves in these thoughts so deeply embed themselves in his subconscious mind that they color his whole attitude toward others Go back now to what was said in lesson one about the dominating thoughts of a man's mind attracting people whose thoughts are similar. Apply the law of attraction and you will soon see and understand why the unbeliever attracts other unbelievers. Reverse the principle. Here is a man who sees nothing but the best there is in all whom he meets. Mm. If his neighbors seem indifferent... He takes no notice of that fact, for he makes it his business to fill his mind with dominating thoughts of optimism and good cheer and faith in others. If people speak to him harshly, he speaks back in tones of softness. Through the operation of this same eternal law of attraction, he draws to himself the attention of people whose attitude toward life and whose dominating thoughts harmonize with his own. Tracing the principle a step further, here is a man who has been well-schooled and has the ability to render the world some needed service. Somewhere, sometime, he has heard it said that modesty is a great virtue and that to push himself to the front of the stage in the game of life savors of egotism. He quietly slips in at the back door and takes a seat at the rear, while other players in the game of life boldly step to the front. He remains in the back row because he fears what they will say. Public opinion, or that which he believes to be public opinion, has him pushed to the rear and the world hears but little of him. His schooling counts for naught because he is afraid to let the world know That he has had it. He is constantly suggesting to himself, thus using the great force of auto-suggestion to his own detriment. That he should remain in the background lest he be criticized, as if criticism would do him any damage or defeat his purpose. Here is another man. Your work and mine are peculiarly... Akin, I am helping the laws of nature create more perfect specimens of vegetation, while you are using those same laws through the law of success philosophy to create more perfect specimens of thinkers. Luther Burbank. Here is another man who was born of poor parents. First, the four, since the first day that he can remember, he has seen evidence of poverty. He has heard talk of poverty. He has felt the icy hand of poverty on his shoulders, and it has so impressed him that he fixes it in his mind as a curse to which he must submit. Quite unconsciously, he permits himself to fall victim of the belief, Once poor, always poor, until that belief becomes the dominating thought of his mind. He resembles a horse that has been harnessed and broken until it forgets that it has the potential power with which to throw off the harness. Auto-suggestion is rapidly relegating him to the back of the stage of life. Finally, he becomes a quitter. Ambition is gone. Opportunity comes his way no longer, or if it does, he has not the vision to see it. He has accepted his fate. It is a well-established fact that the faculties of the mind, like the limbs of the body, atrophy and wither away if not used self-confidence is no exception it develops when used but disappears if not used well that's all for today hopefully we'll finish up tomorrow we might have to might not get in get it all done tomorrow we'll see we'll try to read fast but Thanks for another episode of the Law of Success Mastermind. That uh, was part one of self-confidence. Thank you.